The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our day-long work, sex, money, and dharma. We're very honored to have <clears throat> Martin Aylward for the first time at IMC. He has come all the way from France. And I would like to read a little bit of a bio for Martin. Martin began exploring meditation at age 19, learning and practicing from both Asian and Western teachers, emphasizing nature as a resource for awakening. His approach draws on extensive practice in the Buddhist Theravada tradition, as well as the influence of non-dual teachings and the diamond approach. He and his wife have established a practice center in southwest France. So welcome, Martin. Thank you, Andrea. Okay, well, hello, friends. Good morning. Um, like Andrea said, I, I, uh, I'm not French, actually, if you're expecting a French accent. But uh, I've lived in France for the last... 17 years or so, and I'm here in the Bay Area actually because I've been teaching a week-long course of the same name, Work, Sex, Money, Dharma, um, in San Francisco, using the full days of the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and then uh, every evening, Monday through uh, Friday. And so giving people really a chance to bring their, bring their practice to these areas of their life that traditionally have a lot of charge to them and are often, in ways I'll, I'll maybe explain a little bit, ways that somehow seem to be or can be uh, left out uh, from our sense of spiritual practice, dharma practice. So it's kind of, uh, I was just thinking this morning, it's something of a challenge for me, having spent a week, having had a whole week with a group, to open up the material of this and really make room to explore in quite some depth and detail than to bring the same you know, vast themes to these few hours that we have together here. So we'll have to see together in what ways we can shine light on, uh, on these things. In some way, the, the title, Work, Sex, Money, Dharma, you know, using these, those three areas of our working life, sex being really shorthand for intimate relationship, and the way we relate to money, those, those three things really being shorthand for the the whole, our whole engagement with life. And as well as being a shorthand for the, the whole of life in that way, they're also quite particular areas. And the, the two things that are most central in the Buddha's teaching, most central in Dharma practice, are 
the Buddha called upadana, right? Grasping, clinging, getting tight, contracting around our experience, getting pulled into the, the being demanding around what's happening or, or defensive around what's happening, you know, pulling for something or pushing away from something or being distracted, deluded, confused, just going unconscious, getting lost in what's happening. So that whole area of the way we, as you no doubt explore in your own practice, the way we fuss and freak out, the way we contract, the way we demand and defend and distract from what's going on, and all of that which we might call clinging. And then the other central feature of the exploration of Dharma practice, the sense of identity of who we take ourselves to be. The, the arising of self, the, uh, the maintaining of self, uh, of self the, uh, the kind of the you know, reflecting off our experience and, and uh, constructing a sense of who it's happening to. And the, the ways we take ourselves to be different, different things in different moments. And really, those, those, so if we look at those two areas, clinging and identification as, as very central in Dharma practice, we might start to uh, see how much those things get a hold of these different areas of our life, in our working life. There's a lot of a sense of identity that goes with our working life. Another way, when we meet people, it's, uh, hello, what's your name? What do you do? Right? And when we hear, what do you do? How easily, quickly, uh, we kind of do categorize that. Ah, yes, now I feel like I have a sense of this person. Because I know what they do. So we, we hang a sense of identity on others around their working life easily. And we invest a lot of our own sense of identity. What I do, you know, our investment in work, seems to mean something about who I am. Right? And in a very conventional sense, of course, that's helpful. That, that, uh, uh, under, that's uh, one way of understanding each other. But beyond just the helpfulness in communication, how easily we land in, we contract around we, we uh, construct a, a self-sense. So, our relationship to work, well, that sounds like a really important area for our Dharma practice. If our Dharma practice is the exploring and the understanding and the releasing of clinging, of those demands and defenses and distractions, if our practice is an exploration of how we get caught up in an identity around something, then work, then how we relate to work has a lot to tell us about that. Similarly, with uh, the realm of intimate relationship. I mean, in terms of being demanding, being defended, and... Right? Getting caught up, that's, that's uh, primary realm 
for uh, you know stuff happening. It's also a realm of you know great possibility. And in in the relationships with their with their challenges and with the the beauty and the intimacy, you know, our intimate partners get to see us in a way that nobody else quite does. They get to see us at our most vulnerable, our most naked, our most undefended, and they get to see us often at our most petty, our most intolerant, our most uptight. And so when we're interested in our spiritual practice and peace and love and wisdom and compassion, we don't really like to include, it kind of doesn't fit the self-image of the Dharma practitioner as petty, intolerant, uptight, etc. But when we look at this area of our life, again, in light of our investigation of clinging and of identity, we say, oh, this is, a, this is a precious resource. This opportunity to explore ourselves and the way our buttons get pushed, the way we contract, in a way that you know, no other kind of relationship affords us that same opportunity. And likewise, with money, you know, it's interesting when I teach the, the, the week-long version of this course. Everybody knows they've got issues around their work and some struggles with that. Everybody knows they've got issues around relationship and struggle with that. But money, it's like, well, not much of an issue, just I'd like a bit more of it. It's the general sense. And yet, you know, money is a representation of, of so much. There's so much we can really learn about the way we relate to life through the way we relate to money. And so much about our sense of trust or not, insecurity, of a sense of buoyancy and capacity or a sense of anxiety and fearfulness. How we relate to money says a lot often about... um, Again, our, our sense of identity, confidence. Money has a lot to do with power, status. A lot going on if we open that up. The, the philosopher uh, Jacob Needleman he wrote a, a book a long time ago called Money and the Meaning of Life, which I read a, a long time ago and don't remember much about it now. But one thing I do remember, which I thought was very poignant, he said, given how central the using of money is in our life, how could we have an authentic spiritual practice that doesn't really include the investigation of my assumptions about money, my relationship with money, my patterning, my reactivity in dealing with money? So we might look at our Dharma practice, we might look at our meditation practice, we might look at uh, kind of ethical considerations, you know, the bits that feed into our Dharma practice. And, you know, just to, to see for ourselves how much the investigation of these very charged, very juicy, 
very important, very, um, very, uh, you know, areas full of potential for really opening up our understanding. How much these areas are actually are really alive for us. You know, the the sangha here, and I guess. I guess most of you, in fact, it would be worth checking. I'm assuming that most of you are kind of regulars uh, with our IMC here. But maybe are there, are there maybe people that are coming for the first time or who have barely been here? Okay, good to know. Anyone else? Yeah, okay, two or three people, four people. Okay. So if, uh, if I'm assuming a kind of shared experience that may not be the case, please, if I use terms that you're not sure about, Really, uh, let me know. I, I won't feel uh, badly about being interrupted. I'd rather respond to what's helpful for you than for you to feel like you have to kind of fit into something you're not familiar with. But generally, the, the, as a Sangha here, the connection to the Vipassana tradition, to Theravadan Buddhism, to, I guess, the Zen influence that uh, must be here as well with uh, Gil's background. There's, a, there's an, in a partial inheritance of an Asian monastic practice form. Right? That's where we got this practi- these practices and teachings from. And the monastic form has a particular way of recognizing these charged areas and relating to them, right? And recognizes, wow, work is a really charged area. There's a lot of clinging and a lot of identifying goes on around that. The sexual arena, intimate relationship, wow, similarly, a lot of charge. And money, a lot of charge, a lot of identity, a lot of clinging. So how are we going to deal with that? Okay, let's withdraw. Withdraw from working, Withdraw from sexual relationships. Withdraw from dealing with money. <sighs> now we can do our practice. Right? And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a powerful model, a deeply valid model, a, a really a noble model. You know, it takes a, a huge amount of real conviction and courage to, to put those areas aside. And, and commit really wholeheartedly just to the exploring of heart and mind with, with, uh, in, in a kind of pure way like that. Wonderful. And it's not our model. Right? None of us are uh, withdrawn from those areas. It may be a little bit withdrawn from one or other. Right? Possibly, you know, you may be out of work. Maybe out of relationship, possibly by choice, maybe not by choice. But generally, as contemporary um, American lay practitioners, we're, we're deeply enmeshed in working, in relationship, in dealing with money. We're confronted by those things all day long. So I think it's important to recognize that there's this partial inheritance that this tradition, but that, you know, most meditation, most contemplative traditions have this inheritance where there's a kind of subtle sense that those sort of things, they're not, they don't really fit in the spiritual life. 
and that we're dealing with well, work and money, if we're really serious about practice, the dealing with those is, is you know, just a kind of a necessary evil, even, sometimes. So in, in exploring this kind of material, the, it's uh, an opportunity, rather than, which is sometimes the case, thinking of, of contemporary lay practice as... Um, no, rather than only having this partial inheritance that has a subtle, um, uh, can have a subtle dismissiveness around these areas of our life, to really authentically habit, inhabit an all-embracing Dharma practice, an all-embracing exploration of life, which means an all-embracing exploration of clinging, of where we get tight, of identification of who we take ourselves to be. Our opportunity, our invitation, and I would say our challenge, the challenge of this generation, having received these teachings that have kind of been implanted in our culture from an Asian monastic background, the challenge of our generation is to really find ways to for our practice to leave no stone unturned. Often, the the kind of touchstone for our practice, the touchstone for what meditation really is, for what uh, spiritual experience really is, is measured in terms of um, some deep experience we may have had, some quality of meditation we may have touched in retreat, for example. I wonder, maybe, could you raise your hand if you've been on some kind of residential meditation retreat? Right, most of you. Yeah. And, you know, that's a very, very powerful context certainly for deepening meditation practice. And sustained over some days or many days. And sustained silence, a schedule, a support of teachers and teachings, but the support as well of the Sangha sitting together. That really, really, really conduces to a certain refining of our attention, to a certain deepening of meditation. And that's a very rarefied environment. But easily, when we re-engage with these other areas of our life, work, sex, money, etc., how easily, and you have to see for yourself as I speak about this, how easily we measure what's going on against the touchstone of what was happening in retreat. And then we feel some kind of unease or some kind of going wrong. Some kind of, well, that was where real practice was. That's where real depth is. That's where real opportunity is. And now I'm kind of doing my best. And we get this fantastic, we go on retreat maybe, and we get these great instructions, you know, precise, clear, profound, through the days of the retreat. And then at the end of the retreat, we kind of get sometimes one instruction for the whole of the rest of life. 
which is sort of, well, maybe two. Be kind and be mindful. Right? Now, that's, those are both fantastic instructions. Don't get me wrong. Right? One, can, one, can, one can explore one's life a lot just through the intention to be kind and to be mindful. But I would say that's those instru- those, that isn't enough by itself. And in fact, it's almost a setup, one could say. It's a bit of a setup for failure. Because we attempt then to be mindful in our life, moment by moment. And yet we've got this, this very high bar set for what mindfulness is, which has been established in retreat. So we think, oh, how mindful I was when eating in retreat, when walking in retreat. Even during the retreat, we didn't think we were very mindful. We think, oh, keeps getting distracted here or keep getting lost there. But because the context is so supportive, because it's so conducive to depth, we easily, in the rest of our life, in the light of that attempt to be mindful moment to moment, feel that our practice is somehow less powerful or less potent or less deep or something than in... in the retreat environment, or in those rarefied moments in retreat or, n- or not, in any moment, where there was some kind of deepening of experience. So I think there also, we need to just kind of shine some light on that. So that rather than our daily moment-to-moment engagement with life, with this extraordinary thinking, feeling, animated being that we are. Rather than the engagement with this moment by moment being a kind of substandard version of retreat practice, which I know is a very bleak vision, but you have to see for yourself, but that's often the way it uh, feels to us. If we're really sincere, if we're passionate about that which we've known and touched deeply in meditation... We want to commit to it, and yet it seems daily like, oh, this is a substandard version of, uh, of something deeper called retreat practice. Rather than that, I think we need to find forms of engagement and orientations to these areas of our life that are their, their own spheres of exploration. One of the great liberations of our practice would be the liberation from comparison to those other moments, better moments, deeper moments. That way of comparison that that leaves us feeling somehow dissatisfied with or even blaming of what's happening in our practice. So in the very limited time we have of these few hours exploring together, I just wanted to somehow open up these areas as realms of possibility. And as we, as we uh, well, you know, let's spend some time in meditation together. And as we explore throughout the day, I'd really like to invite you as, as, as much as I can and as much as you can sense into this invitation to just see if we can really inhabit today, inhabit ourselves, our own experience, 
as um, as directly as possible, as curiously as possible, as um, brightly as possible, and as as freshly as possible. Freshly means without comparison. Either without comparison of this, which has a certain silence and schedule and steadiness to it, without comparison of this to the busier moments of our lives, and without comparison of this to other day-longs or to longer retreats that you may have done. That kind of comparison is a tyranny. I remember the the uh, a song a few day a few years ago, maybe ten years ago now, which was the the transcript of a of a graduation speech. It was called the Sunscreen Song. I don't know if you remember it. And one of the lines of the song where it said, "Don't read beauty magazines; they'll only make you feel." Ugly. Which I thought was uh, very perceptive. So we might say, in in the same vein, don't compare your experience in meditation to some other previous or imagined experience. They'll only make you feel inadequate. Measuring comparison. Is a tyranny. So I invite you into the freedom from that tyranny. It may happen, but just the intention to be here freshly. Anyway, the comparison is illusion. But all those other experiences that we might imagine, remember, wish we could have again, think were so important. Where are they? Where are they? What's that attempt to get it back? Where's it gone? You know, completely un un uh, rattrapable, French word, un uh, reclaimable. So, let's see if we can be here freshly, one moment at a time. Um, I noticed that half an hour has gone past and I'm still speaking. So if you, uh, if you feel like you need to stretch your legs a little before we sit, just take a minute or two to stand up if you need. So in terms of the all-inclusive nature of our practice, and the way I was speaking about before in terms of these different realms of our lives. I think it's very, very helpful. It's a, it has been very, very helpful for me to really um, pay particular, close, conscious attention to the transition m- moments into and out of meditation. Otherwise, we easily end up with the um, with the unhelpful sense and the ero- what I would say the erroneous sense of going along in life, and then we stop and do this thing called meditation, which is like a different mode, 
And then we stop doing that and carry on doing something else. That doesn't sound very all-inclusive. Right? And it's the, the same, the, the, the basic natural knowing that we call awareness, this capacity we have to not just to experience, but to know that we're experiencing, to actually be conscious of our contact with life. And it's the same basic knowing, whether we're in what we call active mode or a receptive mode, whether we call that a daily life or meditation practice. The same knowing, but this fluidity with how we focus that knowing. And so rather than meditation and out of meditation seeming like different things, just that willingness to consciously you know, particularize and go focus. And to get this capacity as our sense of of what it is to be aware, grows and deepens, as our capacity to recognize awareness and be skillful with it, grows and deepens. There's an increasing sense of that the same participation in life, the same basic orientation. And that at, at times we might focus that rather particularly, which we might call meditation, in times we might open that rather inclusively, widely. And that's what we can, that's what can sustain, right? That's what we can take with us, whether that be from retreat to into daily life or from meditation into the rest of the day. We can't take the quality of the experience. Otherwise that's a setup. Right? Meditation is conducive to a particular refinement of our attention. Retreat practice is conducive to a particular deepening of meditation. So you can't take that quality from one, what we might call one mode, to another. But the, but the orientation, recognizing that I'm conscious. And bringing a connection moment by moment, a curiosity moment by moment, and a real care for what's happening moment by moment. Whether in uh, focus, narrow focus, or wide focus. So, as we're sitting here now, the quality of, you know, the refinement is different than in uh, the formality of meditation a few minutes ago. But just notice the knowing of being here. The basic aliveness. And trusting that, whether in active or receptive mode, wide or focused mode. I just want to see if anybody, if there's anything that's not clear in the way I was uh, explaining and the way we've been exploring meditation before we go on. Yeah. 
Mm. I appreciated the birds metaphor. Mm. Let them land, let them go. I'm just wondering, are we to bring how we deal with that material um, to, to questions to you or just take the lesson quietly to ourselves? Um, let's see. I'll certainly make time later in the day to to have more dialogue around the world, you know, as we uh, settle in and practice together. Whatever whatever that throws up, maybe things that you discover that that throws up during the day, maybe things you know all too well that are kind of uh, that have a whole momentum for you. So I think what's helpful in terms of the formality of meditation in what we've been calling more focused mode. To, to, like you said about appreciating the birds' uh, imagery, to just let it, just let, let thought be thought, right? So not not getting uh, bound up in the story of what's happened and what I need to do about it and what it means. Yeah, and so we'll make room a little later for a different kind of engagement with that. But for now, birds. Thank you. Okay. So I'd like to make some time for walking meditation and I'd like to do that in, in a little, in a particular kind of way. Um, what do you normally do here for walking meditation? Do you use the, the, the hall here or you use the outside space or a bit of both? A bit of both, okay. okay. So what I'd like to encourage you to do for walking meditation is actually go out and walk in the street and um, to let your focus be wide without getting away from yourself. And you might notice that by being wide, you do get away from yourself. That's fine, right? You can just keep coming back. So let the, the, the wide, the sense of including, inclusion, means including what you're seeing, including whatever responses arise. But let it be grounded in a sense of hereness. You know, know that you're, you know, you're alive in this body, in this place, in this moment. So you might find that rather than just being wide, you need a certain steadying of oh, feet walking, body moving. Right? But rather than keeping the very narrow and particular focus... I think walking meditation is very much a kind of integrative practice. It's a way of bringing the formality and the focus of meditation into a more active mode. So let yourself be aware of what what you're seeing, for example, what the associations are. The stuff of our lives is all around us. I just bought a new car recently. And you know, I gave a lot of thought to what this car was. I wasn't really sure what kind of car, how big a car do I need, what kind of things are important. And so as I noticed, as I kind of really engaged with, it, with this question of car, I started, cars became kind of important. I'd look a lot at car, every car that went past. Oh, there's that one, that one. Huh? You know? And I also started to notice that it's, it, you know, a car, I mean, <clears throat> this is America, right? This is the, the you know... We just have a car on the shrine here. <laughs> you know, a car is, is often more 
but a means to get from this place to that place. Right? So, in the reflecting on what car to buy, and in the, then in the noticing of cars you know, in the street, it was really an opportunity for me to see what's, what's going on. More than just, oh, I need to change this, one, this car that's wearing out its capacity to get me from A to B for another one. No, really an ex- a, a, a chance to explore the, the, the clinging and the identification. What do I think this means about me, this car? And of course, it doesn't mean anything about me. And yet, and yet, you know. So it may be in, in the walking, in the seeing cars, homes, people, trees, you know. Just to see what, what comes alive for you as, you as you walk. And so not being very, very formal in the walking, you know, in, this kind of, in the way that we might do formal walking meditation on a short path, and yet not just kind of strolling aimlessly. Right? But walking meditation, that really has the intention behind it of being integrative of bringing that which I see around me, that which I feel in response to what I see around me, into the arena of practice, the arena of a fresh moment-to-moment engagement, that basic contact. Also, the arena of the curiosity we bring, the investigation. What is this? You know, when something gets a hold of our attention, it's not random. There's some, it's got a hook. So for me, for example, with that, you know, noticing cars, it had a hook. So when, when something hooks you, just to, to be alive to that, what's the hook? And so three elements, I would say, Pali elements called samatha vipassana metta, right? Contemporary way, I often think of those as three C's, which are kind of real, really integral to to mindfulness practice. First, being contact, 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 being here, coming back to being here, body walking, being conscious. And secondly, curiosity. It's not so much an intellectual curiosity. Oh, I wonder what it means that I think about cars. Right? But rather a kind of a kinesthetic curiosity, a feeling more deeply into, what, what is this? How is this acting on me? And thirdly, a sense of care. Just ho- holding the process gently, generously, graciously. Allowing yourself to walk in the street, to have your senses open, to be receptive to what's happening. So is that clear in the way I've described that? Yeah. So let's take it. It's, it's just after 20 past 11 now. And of course, we were, I won't be able to ring a bell because you will be dispersed in this area around. So let's take like 25 minutes for that walking. So please, at 10 to 12, let's be actually back and, and sitting here together, which is in half an hour from now. 
And if you find that you're just giving, that you've gotten away from yourself in some way, just stop for a moment. Just slow down. And so just be beginning again, body walking, feet moving. And then that sense of opening up, seeing whatever comes alive for you. So, please enjoy walking meditation. See you in half an hour. Be present with yourself. And as others arrive and sit down. And just allowing for that seamless quality where the content of experience is changing all the time. Sitting to walking, inside to outside. Simplicity to complexity and back again. But that at the same time as all that changing content, there's this steadiness, seamlessness of being able to just orientate with awareness to whatever that content is, to whatever's happening right now. That basic orientation that we were speaking about as contact, curiosity, care. And so as we spend another short sitting together, again, really being conscious as you're around the transition. Letting the sphere of your attention focus. Body sitting here. Taking a really suitable and supportive posture. Using the natural relaxation of the out-breath to let your attention drop in to body and breath. Letting breathing happen all by itself. Letting the natural intelligence of life of life as this body, as this expression. Letting the nice natural intelligence do the breathing. Expanding and relaxing. And this way then, we practice together.
So what are you noticing as we practice together? As you just track your experience in its uh, wider or more narrower expressions. As you were, in terms of what's standing out in sitting, in terms of what you noticed and what the affect was uh, in the walking. What's, what's alive? What, what's happening? Yeah. What's your name? Sean. Sean. Um, I think what I noticed most which was what I was missing before. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the things that were showing up um, that were always there um, that I just wasn't aware of. And um, how the pace felt very different from the way I normally conduct myself through my days during the week. Mm-hmm. You know, especially I'm thinking in the work environment and all that. The pace felt different. And, uh, and the ease. Mm-hmm. You know, the ease that was there that normally isn't. Right. So. so what makes the difference? Because, you know, the world is there, right? There's a, there's a sky above, there's mm-hmm. the ground below, there's the movements of air and people and objects. And, uh, and yet, sometimes a very, very tangible difference contrast, clash even, between a sense of contact with that which can feel expansive and easeful, and then we remember, oh, well it it wasn't like that yesterday, or Mm -hmm. whatever you're referring to, which can feel uh, pressurized, uh, hurried, and uh, some assumption that there's there's no room for life. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, I think one difference. thing was was the meditation preceding it, which uh, in which I was very settled, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that awareness was sort of uh, primed mm-hmm. in a way to to go out. And even though I do allow time for that before a work day, there's something about the setting that I walk into that becomes contagious. Other yeah. people's attitudes, stress that they bring into it uh, that somehow seems to infect me or I pick up. Uh, I think you talked about the hooks, which right. I, I like that that idea. Uh, the hooks were out there and right. I, I was hooked. Yeah. And uh, almost before I know it, I'm, I'm taken away from that moment somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I do realize it and I can come back, but, um, but I think it's, you know, maybe it was the, the conditions here are very different than the way I normally start other days. And uh, um, I think laying down those conditions, being very conscious of that, maybe I'm able to sustain that, see the hooks Mm. before I'm attached. Mm. But uh, anyway, those are my thoughts. So it sounds like there's two parts to that that are important. One, the recognition that, you know, some environments, some environments have more hooks than others, mm-hmm. right? And if that's the case, definitely it's going to be the case that you get hooked more. Just statistically, you know, there's mm-hmm. more hooks, more chances of getting hooked, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's really helpful to, to really acknowledge so that it's not a setup, you know, of compare, comparing, you know, like, oh, I should, I should be able to feel at work like I feel here. No, more hooks, you're going to be caught up more. And just to the, the normalizing of that somehow. And 
Yet at the same time, the sense that, oh, the contact and the, the um, capacity to sense into what's happening and for the relationship to that to be one that supports a certain kind of ease and spaciousness is always available, regardless of the hooks. And so, in the same way that we've been you know, exploring a little bit this sense of widening and narrowing focus, that's also a widening of focus to the working environment, or those environments where, where it's more intense again, and so you're going to get caught up. And yet the sense of this kind of the possibility for contact, you know, the kind of the one thing of hereness. That also, even the, you know, the, the, that capacity isn't dictated by speed or by uh, how much input there is. The, the sense of the, the one thing might be very simple, just breathing. Or the sense of the one thing might be very complicated, Lots of demands on our time. And yet even though the hooks are out there, the sense of, oh, that there's this meeting with life, that's in some expressions a hooky meeting. The meeting with is the same thing. It reminds me a little of a friend of mine that sat a retreat um, that she was very much appreciated and when she went to thank the teacher at the end of the retreat. And... The, the emphasis a lot through the retreat, the teacher had been emphasizing just like just doing one thing fully. So maybe just breathing fully, just walking fully, just eating fully, just doing one thing fully. And when my friend went to thank the teacher at the end of the retreat, the teacher was sitting with her legs up on a chair, eating her meal and reading a book. Like this. And my friend was aghast. She says, well, look, I came to... Thank you, I really appreciated the retreat, but one of the things I appreciated was this emphasis on just doing one thing fully, and now, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just doing one thing fully, eating my meal while reading a book. So if we get too tight around what one thing fully means, we reduce the, the, the contexts for practice down to this sort of environment. But something, sometimes one thing fully is very wide, very inclusive. Right? And so the one thingness can't be, de- de- um, can't be defined by the quality of the content, but rather by the quality of the contact with it. And so, let's see on Monday morning. You know. I think, you know, just the, this, this form we're playing with, the image of and the, the practice of widening and narrowing. Okay, thank you. I uh, think I came to this retreat with um, uh, the idea that I could um, meditate through the context of the money, the sex, and the work idea and it seems that through my meditation I'm um, I'm feeling very good about the expanse that I that, that I've been able to attain but I'm also feeling the uh, the issues that um, that of the context that I that, that, that I um, 
came here with, which was to um, deal with some of the issues around the money, the sex, and the and and the work um, uh, outside uh, that that that's now um, kind of the. Uh, is where is where I go in the meditation when I'm uh, when when my breathing and my and my expansiveness contracts back to that issue again, and so I'm struggling with uh, with, with the with those issues mm-hmm. and at the same time dealing with the uh, the finding the peace in the meditation. Okay. Okay. So, what's your name? I'm Barry. Barry. So um, when, you, when you get caught up, Barry, in turning around one or other of those subjects, right, something to do with a work situation or relationships, some kind of uh, sense of being troubled by, preoccupied by, or anxious about, or you know, in some way caught up with those things, what's, what's, it, what's it like? You don't have to go into the details of what it is you're caught up, but what's the being bound up with that like? We have this intention, oh, I'm going to sit and breathe. And then, we, oh, there's that thing, oh, and you find yourself bound up with it. What's it, we might ask that in two different ways. One, may, one way might be, what's it like, that being bound up? Another is, you know, what are you, what are you trying to do in, in, uh, in turning that stuff over in your mind? Well, in, in most times when I do meditate, I breathe out of the... Uh, of, of that, and I, I, I go back to my uh, my meditative uh, breathing and concentrate on my breathing. But uh, the feeling of contraction mm. and kind of uh, of dealing with those issues re- returns. Yeah, and then uh, I try to expand again and get back uh-huh. into my mm-hmm. meditative state. So uh, I feel. The longer I do meditate, the the, the easier it is to um, uh, to maintain that 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 that, that expansiveness. Right. But uh, when that expansiveness does contract again, I'm dealing with those issues okay. once again. So, okay. Yeah. So you have a sense. It sounds like no, a sense of expansiveness that's free from issues. Right. And you have a sense of the contraction that's caught up with issues. Right. right. And then you find the one, oh, I'm caught up with issues, trying to get back to a sense of expansion. Right. right. How, what about, as when you sense the contraction, staying with the sense of the contraction? What I mean by that isn't just the issue that's causing you to feel the contraction, but the actual sense of, what, of the condition of being caught, being contracted around. Well, I find myself thinking about how I can alleviate that. Yeah. So my so suggestion is the that maybe that's a step too far. Okay. Right. So that it can be a step away from what's actually happening. Right. So just the willingness, rather than going to how can I alleviate, to the kind of the curiosity. What, what is this? Right. Because there's a reason it gets a grip on you. The reason isn't just because of the issue. Because you you've thought about the issues lots and lots and lots, right? And however much we think about the issue, oh, we come back, and, oh, and just, it's kind of circular often, mm-hmm. right? An endless... Uh, sure. Right. 
So the, the hook isn't particularly the story. There's something in there, in the, the contraction. So my suggestion would be, rather than trying to alleviate that, which has a little bit of an, a kind of agenda of or getting back to something I think of as meditative, the sense of meditation as the exploration of whatever's alive, to let yourself actually sense into and explore what, what, what is this contraction? What am, I trying, what am I trying to do with it? So that sensing into the, what I would call the kind of energetic shape or sense of the, of the contracted state rather than just the issue that's causing it. Does that make sense when I say it like that? Yeah, it does make sense, but um, I find that um, the circular pattern you know, r- returns and I'm, uh, you know, in the past I have through, uh, through meditating, I have you know, had some insight as to how I could deal with those issues. Mm-hmm. So it, it's helped in that sense. But so it's it's a circular pattern, but it also had some relief yeah. issues as well. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, I I, I find I, I find it very helpful to to uh, continue to expand and and yeah, I, I think that. Uh, um, what, what you're saying is, uh, is helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So if you find that you're genuinely reflecting on the issues, right? that it's a, it's a conscious process of, oh, what's that? Ah, and then it opens that up. Great. Reflection is a great capacity. But it sounds like when you're caught up, it's not so much a reflection as a, just a kind of, um, a sort of automatic kind of going on and on with those things. So... Quite naturally, we sense like that. We thought, oh, we want to come back to alleviate, to come back to some open space. But then the, the problem is, in some ways, though that can feel relieving and beneficial, we've got the responsibility for having to do the letting go. Right? So I've got to constantly do something to try and refine a meditative space. And another way just of looking at it, in some ways, you know, wisdom, the natural function of wisdom is the softening around, the letting go. And so in some ways, rather than having to do that, there's, there's often something very helpful just about letting yourself sense the pattern itself. And in the pattern, there's a kind of, uh, when we really sense what's keeping it going, kind of natural softening so you know don't have to take my word for it but my encouragement would be just at the moment when you notice there's a contraction rather than either just being caught up in it or having to go somewhere to soften it just to take a moment at least to actually feel the shape of it to feel well well, how what's my investment in this what am i doing with it let's see okay thank you yeah yeah I don't know how much of a story you want in this, so if I go a bit uh, amiss, just stop me. Um, I, on my walking meditation, I didn't get too far um, in terms of distance from the IMC. I walked across the street and noticed the uh, for lease sign on the building across mm. the way, which um, used to be Planned Parenthood. And... For those of you who might be newer, 
when we first moved here, Planned Parenthood, um, it was a point of practice for me to come to IMC because often on Wednesdays they would have um, protesters, um, people Mm. who had big signs with fetuses that were torn from wombs and rather graphic Mm. display. And um, that over the years has subsided, um, the protests. But um, when I would come in just as a woman, you know, um, concerned about just the whole issue around Planned Parenthood anyway, noticing that they had left, you know, made me um, curious Mm. because I never gone into the building and thought of people that might have been served by that woman that may have gone there. Mm. And the mailings I used to get from Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. that I would toss away because there are just too many agencies that want your money, and I I didn't um, donate to them. Mm. So then I I was was the What's your name? My name's Lynn. Lynn. Yes. So what was the kind of affect, Lynn, so then, you know, we explored this possibility of just open, noticing what sort of right. pulls on the attention. You noticing, oh, there's this seeing of the building and the lease sign pulls the yes. attention. And the association with it, oh, yes. and the fact of that being gone, and the memories of what the, the ways it's... And then what was the affect? So I, I went to look inside. And... Uh, uh, just being curious as to what the building was like. And, and as I went around, I looked in each of the windows. And um, through the alley, there was a sign. Um, I, apparently, Grand Parenthood shared this building with a, a rehabilitation center, which had moved. Mm. And, so um, what I'm asking um, around the affect is, what was the emotional response? Oh, uh, I, such a mix of emotions. Um, one is um, feeling concerned and um, and frightened, maybe, that um, people that were in need may not have a place to go. You know, the sign of just the dwindling economy mm. and uh, social services. Mm. So, yeah, there was some fear, regret, um, sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it sounds like what started out as just a noticing uncovered a whole kind of heart response and relationship. Right. I mean, kind of brought all this work, sex, money <laughs> to, a, to a bit of a head, you mm. know, in one uh, stroll. So it was, it was kind of like, hmm. Without really knowing, um, you know, administratively if this was, you know, if they had moved or if they right. chose right. a facility that was not well-attended yeah. or whatever. And, you know, in the, in the, it, to the degree to which you're interested in that and concerned for that, there's all kind of follow-up you might do around right. that. But in the, that's a little out, out of the, you know, later on, right? 
But in the moment, it sounds important that just in allowing what you were confronted by to, to, really, to really meet it. Right? Not yeah. just a meeting in terms of the idea, oh, they've moved. But the, the heart response that was alive there. Yeah. And, you know, that expression of practice as tracking the affect, tracking how, not just what's happening, but how it's impacting us. Right. You know? Because that's what determines our, our intimacy with life, actually. Our yes. sense of inclusion with life, how, how much we respond to what's there. We might be walking down a sunny street and every, any kind of affect can be there. We can just be so caught up with our own life, there's not even any room for what's happening around us. Right. Or we can be walking down a sunny street um, deeply touched by, the, by, by the, just the sense of uh, life's unfolding. You know, a very different affect, very different quality of engagement. Or we can be touched by sadness, grief, concern, in the, in the way that you mentioned, in the, in the loss of something. And this is just a kind of well, an importance and authenticity in letting the heart respond in whatever way it does. And sometimes it might be the response of appreciation, delight, beauty. Sometimes the response of sadness, loss, grief. And there's a way that there's something that brings what's there alive when, when there's the receptivity to being touched by. Yeah, thank you. How are you doing? Are you getting hungry? No, no, no. Go ahead, go ahead. We can watch our hungry sensations while you speak and then we'll make time for lunch. It's more of a quick comment, not a question. Uh, but I, I found your... Um, Doing one thing, story really helpful. Um, uh, so I, I do uh, poverty law in the East Bay, and so I'm working with people in a community of abject poverty, lots of suffering that I, I don't think I could fully understand, though I have my own suffering. Um, and a lot of times I feel overwhelmed. Um, and I've heard a teacher say before, maybe it was Gil, but I want to attribute mm. to him, um, to approach your workplace like a monastery. And... Um, it seems like a great idea to me, but then trying to practice it, I feel like, oh, but I have so many things to do. It can never happen. And so uh, this past week, for instance, I found myself overwhelmed. I'm supposed to be writing a brief. And so I'm procrastinating by looking up what retreats can I go on so I can take a break from work. And I'm getting stressed out because I don't think I can do the retreats that I want to do, and that's a source of stress too. Um, And, yeah, so... (laughs) But, you know, the idea of approaching my work, though, is that I'm not actually doing so many things. I'm doing one thing. Um, I, I find that, actually, an approach that I, I think can be helpful. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. That coming back is a, is a kind of simplifying of what can seem the whole momentum of this and this and this. So, oh, I'm just doing one thing. Even if the one thing is a kind of complex multitasking. Right? That too is just one thing. It's just, it's just one moment at a time. And uh, there's, there's always space. You know, when we, actually, when we actually give ourselves to the fact of what's here, there's always space around what's here. Because look, even just visually, physically, what's here is vast. We tend to focus on the details. Oh, there's this and this one and this one and this one. But more... Um, more resonant, more relevant than the details of what's here that seems to take up all the space. Oh, there's always space for what's here. 
But when that's when that's um, all bound up with what's going to be here and what should be here and what could be here and what wasn't here, but sh- then then very hard to find that space. So just that that just one thingness, that one thing at a timeness. Even if the one thing is is a is a complicated, uh, convoluted one thing. Mm, good. Okay, so how we? It's twenty to one. Let's take some time for lunch. I'm always a little curious at this time of day how people's energy levels are doing. Already it's the weekend, right? So for some of you there may be a certain, oh, at the end of a busy week, and then it's a warm afternoon and full belly. All the conditions lining up to make for uh, kind of <laughs> dull meditation. Reminds me actually of when a, a, a friend of mine was uh, preparing for a retreat. This is like about 20 years ago in India. They were, they'd rented some land and they were preparing to hold a retreat, but they had to build everything from scratch. They had, you know, so they had, they'd hired tents and they built the makeshift kitchen and they'd spent a couple of weeks working really, really hard to prepare this piece of land so that it could have the retreat happen there. And by the time the retreat <coughs> began, the various volunteers were kind of exhausted and then they were still were serving, doing the cooking, etc. for the retreat. Anyway, at the end of the, the retreat, uh, somebody who'd been sitting the course said to the teacher, wow, I'm very inspired by the, the practice and I'd really like to continue, but uh, you know, I, I want to learn the advanced practice. And the teacher said, well, you know, I, I don't know what you mean. You know, this is the way we practice. What have we been teaching you these 10 days? That's what we do. He said, no, but I, a di- you know, I see the staff seem to be doing a different practice. And I, I want to learn what they're doing. And she says, no, I don't know what you mean. He says, sure, they practice differently. They, they go like this. <laughs> so, when dull mind is there, you, you might console yourself with the knowledge that it's, an, it's advanced practice. <laughs> so, partly... The humor with that helps to uh, brighten the mind a little bit. But um, it's a kind of natural energy slump that's often there after lunch. That's why we have the, the siesta uh, where I live. So, but in, in lieu of taking a siesta, sometimes helpful just to, just to really make room for actually brightening the mind, waking up the cells, So that our intention to be present isn't just a theoretical intention, but that we're able to really, you know, commit to that in a wholehearted way. So I'd like us to do just a a little bit of movement, movement for a few minutes to support the brightness of mind that we can then bring to sitting. So let's stand up. We might say that there are four states. With regard to this tracking of uh, 
what, what the Buddha called greed, hatred, and delusion. But what I'm referring to, rather than than in the kind of formality of that language, what I'm referring to in terms of their affect in our experience as demand, greed, demand, hatred, defended, delusion, you know, distracted. I like mnemonics, so three Ds: demanding, defended, distracted. We could equally talk about them as three Cs in terms of the affect: compulsion. Contraction, confusion. Right, so that basic me- me- momentum towards, or away from, or just kind of out and unconscious. And so, in terms of the, the tracking of that, and the practice of the freeing up of those things, we might uh, we could say there are four states. And first would be just a natural. A naturally undemanding, undefended, undistracted presence. That's there sometimes. It might be when you're on vacation and you wake up in the morning. The sun's coming through the window. There's nothing to do. There's nothing you need to do. And the sense of the maybe familiar sense of momentum towards doesn't arise. That's when there's some recognition. Oh. Nothing I need to do. And those moments where there's a certain kind of exquisite ease, contentment, relief, basically, relief from the tensions of those three movements. And so sometimes, maybe even in, in rather small or ordinary ways, moments when there's some, yeah, some respite, some relief, when none of those three forces are pulling or pushing us around. And those tend to be um, gratifying moments, great moments of grace, we might say. And it's rather tragic, given the, the relief, the ease, the, uh, the, uh, the peace of that. It's rather tragic that those moments are often so few and far between. And the second state might be where by attending to our experience, we, we notice one of, those, one of those contractions. We notice that we're making a demand or a defense or a distraction and we, and we really see its unsatisfactory nature. And in the seeing of it, oh, it drops. Now that's actually the... We talk about, often we talk in this practice about it being a practice of letting go. But in some ways, you know, there's a kind of... It's a little bit our human egoic arrogance that takes the credit for doing the letting go. Actually, we, we don't really let go. The letting go is a natural function of wisdom. What we really do is see, is, is really kind of sense in to really understand the, uh, what isn't let, let it go of. That's bad grammar. But, uh, you know, what we do is really see the holding 
And when we really see, oh, how much energy it takes, how unsatisfactory it is, how it doesn't work, then we don't really need to do something to let go. Then, quite naturally, oh, that softens. It's just the same as just with physical tension. If somebody says to me, oh, relax, and I say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm relaxed. And I might think I'm relaxed, I feel relaxed, but I may be so used to carrying some tension somewhere that I think I'm relaxed because I'm so used to it, I can't, I'm not attuned to it, I don't notice it. And then someone says, oh, what about your shoulders? Oh. And the moment when my attention actually turns there, when I really feel the tension, when I notice, oh, how uh, unpleasant, unhelpful it is, oh. Don't need to kind of do something. It's like there's a natural oh. Wisdom recognizes the freedom of letting go. So that second state, wherein there's there's enough recognition of the of the demand or defence or distraction that it softens. And the third state is when there's also some recognition. Right? Some sense of being in conflict with life, in, in struggle with life, some sense of pulling for or pushing against or just kind of being all at sea with what's happening. But not enough recognition for it to soften and drop. And that's when we're really invited to explore that. We often, when we hear about this practice, we think in terms of wisdom and compassion and all these lovely spiritual qualities. But actually, you know, the Buddha emphasized also that this practice as the, the working with greed, hatred, and delusion. It's rare in a meditation group to somebody to, for us to kind of own up to, I'm, I'm working with hatred, exploring hatred, and feeling hatred. It's like, we feel somehow that wouldn't, there wouldn't be room for that here. There's room for compassion. There's room for these like, lovely spiritual qualities. But God, we've got to have room for hatred. That's how, that's how uh, it gets opened up. That's how it gets freed up. Not by squashing it. Not by pretending it's not happening. Not by having some sense that it shouldn't be happening. So that's when we're invited to actually explore the pushing away. Like, what do I think that's going to do for me? Even in the, just in the discomfort, physical discomfort, for example, that can be there in meditation. We easily go to, oh, how, how to kind of fiddle with that or try to fix that. But the invitation to actually, you know, to study the resistance, to study the difference between the basic, you know, some heat, pressure, tension, and then all that we do with it, all the pushing against, all the fighting with, So that third state, when there's some conflict and the opportunity to explore that. And then the fourth state, when, which is like another layer on top, when not only are we trapped in some, um, one of those three movements, but on top of that we're judging ourselves for it. Oh, I shouldn't be like this. Right? It's bad enough that there's already some resistance, but then there's resistance to the resistance. So a judgment of the resistance. 
Oh, I, oh, I'm pushing against my experience. Oh, I shouldn't be doing that. And then we can go, you know, layers and layers deep. Oh, he said we shouldn't judge our experience, so I shouldn't be saying that I shouldn't be feeling the resistance. So all those four states, which get, you know, as I described them, get progressively more convoluted, they're all equally, they're all of equal value. They're all equally a part of our practice. We'd like to push everything up towards the first state and just some kind of sublime abiding. But I don't know anyone whose life's like that. Not you, not me, not the Buddha, not anybody in between that I've ever come across. So it's a bit of a forlorn hope trying to put all our uh, experience up that end. As if our freedom of being is some state that uh, kind of uh, passes along easily like that. It's sometimes called enlightened retirement. Freedom of being, by its very nature, is too free to be confined by just a state. Much more, it's the, the freedom to move through, to explore to navigate all states. So maybe there's those moments of grace, of a natural ease and spaciousness. Maybe there's those moments that, that in our recognition of what's happening, there's softening. It may be that in feeling the sense of conflict, we really need to explore, to open up, to sense into, to investigate, to inquire. And it may be when we're just putting too much pressure on ourselves and we just need to uh, cultivate gentleness. Just hold the whole thing lightly. So let's take a little time, um, maybe just a short time, more of a leg stretch and bathroom break than a really a period of walking meditation. But we can certainly uh, do the leg stretching and bathroom using in the same spirit of really staying with ourselves. So uh, with the, let's take about 15 minutes probably, the time, so might some chance for some quiet walking the chance for as many people as need to to use the bathroom. Now I'll ring the bell in about 15 minutes for the afternoon teachings. So, um, as I mentioned this morning, and this, we've been uh, paying attention to this really central feature in Dharma practice and teachings of the way we get caught up. And exploring that in terms of the three main pulls, the pull towards, the push away, the, and the various names we've given that. And whether that's in relation to um, the themes that we touched on this morning, work, relationship, money, 
or whether actually in the investigation of any experience, any situation, any way in which we're confronted in life, you know, that's the, that central mm, map, if you like, or central model of, of how to track our experience. Uh, we've uh, we've pointed to in different ways. Just speaking just before the break, there about the four different states, and the really the emphasis in our practice as an attunement to whichever of those states is there. The attunement to the natural ease and freedom of being that might be apparent to us, or the attunement to some. Uh, egoic investment that then softens in the, in the light of that attunement or the investment in, that, in whatever that uh, egoic momentum is that we might need to really explore, investigate either in that moment or often in many moments again and again when the strength of those patterns are such that they've been well established over decades and then sometimes and uh, the overcomplicating of things. And sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Right? When we start to practice Dharma, sometimes we end up o- compacting and putting our experience and putting more pressure on our experience than before. That's where the ex- expression ignorance is bliss comes from. Right? It's like, oh, we used to just be, uh, you know follow these unconscious patterns and didn't know any better. When it starts to be, when we notice we're following unconscious patterns, it's like we don't want to support that anymore. And yet, there maybe isn't enough spaciousness to actually be free of those patterns. And then that easily gets into, we get this kind of spiritual judgments about them. I shouldn't be doing that. What's the matter with me? Oh, I'm so... So... In addition to the kind of primacy, through those di- through the different ways in which we can notice either the the impact of greed, hatred, and delusion, demand, defence, distraction, or the freedom from those things. In addition to that, I'd just like to really offer some few further reflections on the three areas that uh, that are in the title that we spoke about this morning. Um, Reflections that offer um, ways of engaging with those areas of our life in the light of Dharma teachings or ways of engaging with those areas as expressions of Dharma practice. And offering those reflections also as some prelude to whatever that uh, calls forth in you and the opportunity to have some dialogue about that. Uh, somebody was saying this morning uh, about uh, Gill's recommendation. Or actually, I think he said it may or may not have been Gill's recommendation, somebody's recommendation, to to relate to the workplace as if uh, a monastery. And uh, in that light, 
our workplace or our work environment or our work situation as uh, the opportunity to cultivate certain qualities. Mm. Outer qualities of investing in work that that has meaning, work that seems aligned with our values, work that uh, we can... uh, that we can give ourselves to wholeheartedly. And uh, the opportunity for the kind of uh, the inner um, qualities, patience, deep listening, caring, skill with communication, etc. As well as the kind of base quality of presence. Mm contact that we might explore but it seems like it seems to me that there are there are two uh, two ways of engaging with work that actually particularly support that being able to happen and we might call those two ways either loving what you do or no either doing what you love or loving what you do and I'll explain a little what I mean by that First, you know, doing what you love really refers to um, that situation, and have to see for yourself if you have the what we might call the good fortune, but to to do something that you really love, and so of course not just good fortune because it's born out of the orientation, the commitment, the the, the and whatever it's taken in terms of energy investment and time and study and maybe courage sometimes to leave something else, in order to do what I love. If we're doing what we love, what has for us naturally a sense of being meaningful, being important, being a response to the world as we experience it, being a response of our own hearts, then there's a a natural condition in place for those qualities, those outer qualities, It's very, very um, what's the word? I was going to comforting isn't really quite the right word, but very the sense of authenticity. If we know we're doing something that has depth and meaning and import in life, which I'm calling doing what you love, and when the, the channels are open in that way, that I that I know that I'm engaging my work in that way. Then it's then the sense of being able to cultivate those inequalities, the listening, the caring, you know, giving a, a lot of uh, attention to our work. They kind of they they. It's not that they're automatic, but that there's a natural possibility to give rise to them, to cultivate them, to make for our work to become our practice. And that may be the, the, the case for some of you and may not for others. It's uh, not given to us all for whatever reason, circumstantial reason, or uh, we might find ourselves doing something that doesn't feel like our greatest passion in life. It may be that our greatest passion in life is hopelessly um, uh, unremunerable, Right? Maybe that our uh, passion in life isn't something that the world values enough to pay us for doing. Maybe. 
And then the opportunity is to love what you do. Means to actually, whatever it is you do uh, as your work, to actually invest it with care. Invest it with those qualities, outer and inner, that we were just speaking about. Mm. Mm, To make it a practice. In just the same way as the monastery. The monastery may be, at times, the place we would love to be. And certainly having friends that are monks, you know, and nuns, speaking about sometimes a sense of the great gratitude to be in the bosom of the Dharma in a monastery. And they might well feel they're, they're doing what they love. And at other times, the challenge is to try and love what they're doing. Other times the monastery might feel very restrictive, very uh, oppressive. So, and uh, likewise our workplaces. And then the opportunity, the the, uh, possibility to align ourselves with actually investing what we do with, I'm calling love, a shorthand for care, for uh, uh, commitment etc etc but it also may be the case that it doesn't seem possible for us to love what we do some things it's hard to love impossible to love the the uh someone someone asked the buddha about lifestyle you know there was a few jobs he said you know if you're practicing the dhamma don't do these jobs it's hard, to, it's hard to open your heart. If you're a butcher, for example, he said, don't be a butcher. If, you're, if that's your business, is, is cutting beings' heads off. And it's very hard to, to kind of deepen and deepen one's sensitivity to life in the morning for half an hour. And then have to desensitize you know, in that way for the rest of the day. With the other things, there's a few things. He said, "Don't sell arms. Don't be an arms dealer." Right? There were arms dealers two and a half thousand years ago, not quite as sophisticated as now. But uh, he said, "Don't be an arms dealer. If your business is, you know, facilitating the death of other beings, in a similar way to the butchery, it's just it's just not compatible. It's not a moral judgment on butchery." Particularly, or it's not condemning butchers to some kind of uh, you know, level of hell realms when they die. It's just recognizing that uh, you know, if you if you're going to love what you do, if your work is going to be an arena wherein you cultivate the heart, some situations you know really don't lend themselves to that. So I think for ourselves, we need to see to the extent that we're sincere and serious about this cultivation of the heart, we have to see whether our work is are doing what we love, or whether our work is something where we can bring love, bring awareness, bring care, bring sensitivity to what we do, or not. And if the answer is not, if you're doing something for your work that seems not just kind of not perfectly aligned with your values, but actually in, um, what's the word? Thank you in opposition to your values, then, you know, I think it's important. You know, it might be stark, it might be difficult to confront oneself with the fact. 
But you know, you're then, that if there it's in opposition, then you're putting yourself in opposition to your heart. And so sometimes we might be faced with rather stark choices. Again, it's not to make a moral judgment about the kind of work we do, but, but just to say, what, are we really, what do you really want to support? And to the extent that Dharma practice is a, a, a radical transformation of our life, to that extent, sometimes it might ask of us quite radical transformations in maybe the work we do, the people we hang out with, the kinds of activities that we invest our time and energy in. So, a work environment as an, uh, as an opportunity to cultivate the heart and the, the question, you know, the exploring for oneself to see is if that's true, if the environment can offer that. Intimate relationship, of course, is all about love, in theory, at least. We use love kind of glibly. And uh, even the word love has, has kind of been cheapened in some ways in our, in our mainstream culture. You might think of yourself, what, what's the associations that you immediately have when you hear the word love? It's, you know, mind might go to a kind of Disney version of love. Yeah. Happy Ever After version. The romantic comedy version. They you know, follow a similar kind of uh, pattern. All those, you know, they keep producing films like that. And they all got the same template. Right? Two people meet. There's some uh, confusion, some struggle. It all looks good. Then it all goes horribly wrong. And then they overcome adversity and <laughs> happily ever after. And it's not to underestimate, even though we see through the, the triteness of that, to some extent, it's not to underestimate the conditioning power that that has in our lives around, the, uh, around love, around romantic love, intimate relationship. You know, we were brought up on uh, Disney, maybe, or on fairy stories. You know, if you're... Before film was so ubiquitous, when people used to uh, read to their children, <laughs> and no doubt still do. You know, the, the, how, how many of those stories we remember, or only half remember, but they really went in, that sense of, and they all lived happily ever after. And there's a kind of unconscious expectation around that with intimate relationship. And that's to the extent that we have that unconscious expectation, to that extent it's quite problematic when then, then when things go wrong. Because when things go wrong, when there's uh, disharmony, when there's disagreement, when there's discord, more, th- three more Ds, disses, disharmony, discord, dis- disaster, disaster. <laughs> <laughs> in relationship, we, we, it's easy for us to forget that 
that's what happens. Not just in relationship, that's what happens in everything in life. The, you know, that harmony isn't a stable state. Harmony conditions disharmony. Disharmony, yeah. Accord conditions discord. Discord reconditions accord. And yet how easily, when, when, when there's a disharmony or discord in our relationships, it seems, to, it seems really threatening to the foundations of the relationship. Mm. Have m- different patterns with that. And for some people, it's like when it goes wrong, we just ba- bail out. Whether that's of a young relationship, you know, or is that the, what, you know, the honeymoon period, and then something goes wrong, and sometimes it's very unsettling. And often it's unsettling to the extent to which we have some um, fantasy view of happily ever after. And so then we bail out and move on to the next one. And some you know, people do that with marriages. You know, it's kind of one after the other after the other. It goes wrong a bit. Oh, oh it must be wrong. It, what, what, it must be wrong. On to the next one. Some people's pattern is, is rather that there's a kind of resignation and the relationship dies from the inside. And yet, for whatever reason, codependency really, one kind of... Uh, stays there and we live, live in the same house and uh, we manage the bills together bring up the children together but to all intents and purposes the relating has kind of died and what is, things that start off as uh, you know, the more and more stuff becomes unsaid until it starts to feel unsayable and kind of you know, and that unsaid or unsayable stuff becomes a wall, wall between the people. And so we have the uh, the appearance, the facsimile of relationship. And, and there's also that possibility when things go a bit wrong. Note, there's no if. That uh, when things go a bit wrong in relationship. The willingness to then, you know, do the work of love. No, we don't like the idea of the work of love. We like that happily ever after thing, right? And love, and then it's all all right. I spoke about, you know, enlightened retirement earlier. We like to think of that kind of a loving retirement. And sometimes, even if we're prepared to do the work of love and we work at our relationships, there can still be that expectation that oh, if, if I didn't have this problem, or if only my partner wasn't so... Then we would get, if we could only get past that, then we could get to happily ever after. And how easily we focus on that thing that she does, or that he does, or whatever... That, that, that seems to be in the way of my happiness. Oh dear. Because as you know, you know if it's when, uh, when if you get past that thing, there's something else. There's not one thing. That's the Jewish expression. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. So that willingness to do the work of love as a, as a practice, 
as something that we meet again and again, to actually meet our partner afresh, that's really a practice. It's natural. We, you know, we, in the same way that we accumulate, uh, if, we, if we don't stay really alive to it, our tendency is to accumulate an ever more ossified sense of self inwardly. Same thing with our partners. The tendency is to ossify, you know, just to build layers on top of what we think we know about them. So it's a practice. To do the work of love, to meet our partner afresh. A practice for love, you know, love as a practice, love as a verb, love as something that we, that we cultivate that we attune to. Rather than the idea, you know, we tend to think of love as some kind of static thing. You're in love or you're not. Or, and sometimes, you know, you justify all kinds of bad behaviors. Because, well, because I love the person. I had a friend who was in a very dysfunctional relationship with a kind of crazed Spanish woman. And she, she had this kind of very fiery temper. She was very sweet in some ways, but she just gave my friend a t- horrible hard time. She was just very, very difficult. And I said, hey, you know you're really giving him a hard time. And she said, it's because I love him. <laughs> and somehow the justification that it seemed, uh, you know, uh, that those we love... We say, I love you, as if I just exist in that state with you. And that that excuses the fact that then I can be uh, so intolerant or so petty or so uh, unable to see your viewpoint or so whatever it might be. It's kind of astonishing that the ones we profess to love the most, and what does that love mean? To feel so close to, so concerned for, so invested in the well-being of the other that we reserve our worst behavior for them. So, what does it mean to love as a practice? the, the, The cultivation of love in relationship, the willingness to listen, the willingness to wait a willingness to see not what's happening there. It's easy to be experts on what our partner needs to do, right? But what's happening here? And like we were saying earlier, the, the, the unique opportunity that intimate relationship offers for that. So that also the practice of love, the cultivation of love, the working with those qualities, so that relationship can also really be the arena for the fruits of love. The, the Buddha talks about love in terms of four particular, rather than this one sort of, we might call it, say, clumsy umbrella term, love. For what do we mean when we talk about love? We mean the kind of the expansion of the heart. When the Buddha talks about love as having four, four, speaks particularly about four very distinct flavors of love. And uh, being the, the Brahma Viharas, 
in the Pali, divine abidings, boundless qualities of heart. In other words, four ways in which the heart expands boundlessly, without limit. And I, I think of those as a rather free translation to call them four flavors of love. If you go to the Pali and you translate it to English, you won't end up with the term four flavors of love, but that's what's being spoken about. And I was just speaking with uh, Ed, Ted, Ted in the break, and we were speaking a little bit about the nature of translation. The fact that you know, a lot of terms from the Buddhist tradition were translated 50, maybe even 100 years ago now. And the, the, you know, as culture changes and language changes, I think some of those translations are a little clumsy. I like Roland Barthes' idea that all good books ought to be retranslated every 20 years. And that sense that we find translations, never mind if they're slavishly literal, but that capture the essence of what's being spoken about. So with the Brahma Viharas, which I guess uh, mo- at least most of you are familiar with, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, we've got what I think, I mean maybe the translations work fine for some people, but I think they're all pretty bad. Loving kindness? I don't like that as a translation for Metta. It's dreadful. It sounds kind of very sweet and nicey-nicey. To me, and you see that like in Buddha, in sanghas, right? Somewhere people are trying to be lovingly kind <laughs> to each other. I don't think that's meta. You know, I prefer you know as a flavor of love. L- meta is the caring expression of love. So just the simple word care, I think, is a good good translation for meta. And the affect in the heart is warmth, a kind of radiant warmth. And that's how we recognize, not so much through the name, but through the sense in the heart of a radiant warmth, of caring. Care expands the heart. Care is uh, an expression, a a refraction of love. Love in its caring aspect. A relationship is an arena for that care to blossom. Every, everything's an arena for that uh, care to blossom. So the, now that I'm into those, I'll, I'll just go through them. Karuna, often translated as compassion. That's actually, I'm all right with that one. I don't mind that as a translation. But I, often, I think often metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, are sometimes often used kind of interchangeably and they're very very different qualities very very distinct the affect in the heart of compassion is pain right? that sense of the recognizing the suffering of another it's the, the expression of the heart that responds that reaches out that, that, uh, that meets suffering so metta is the, is the expansion of the heart in, rela- in, in response to, to uh, you know, that which invites our care, our warmth. Compassion is the expansion of the heart to include that which is in pain, whether here or there. And the affect in the, part, in the heart is that kind of, uh, the kind of agony of that. Mudita, 
terrible translation. Sympathetic joy. There's something in the Buddhist emphasis on you're not, not allowed to focus on oneself. So it's okay to feel joy, but it has to be for somebody else. And I don't think that's the, that sense doesn't seem to be there in the way the Buddha spoke about it. It's more recently the translation has been updated to uh, appreciative joy. Much better. But the affect in the heart of that is delight. A kind of fizzy, delightful, enjoying the, the, the way the heart expands in wonder, in appreciation, in delight. It's the heart expands expanding to include that which is delightful. It's the meeting of the heart with beauty, with wonder, gladness. That which invites love, inclusion. So when that which is in front of us is is beautiful, that response we have to beauty, ah, the enjoying, the delight in, the wonder at, It's, uh, particularly, it's, it's so interesting how these are all very clearly experiences of love, but they're also very, very distinct. And then uh, upeka, often translated as equanimity, which uh, again, I'm, no, I'm a little bit pedantic with the translations. I'm, I'm not trying to suggest there's anything wrong with these terms, and for others may find them totally adequate, which is fine. But I think equanimity can suggest some sense of kind of um, a, a sort of a sort of flattening of our experience. So I'm stay very equanimous, and you know, lovely things might happen, but I stay equanimous. Difficult things might happen, but I stay equanimous, and that's not so redolent of love, right? I think the the sense of, of uh, upeka is as that expression of love which expands to include, which makes room for, the love which allows. And the affect in the heart of equanimity, of the upeka, is spaciousness. The sense of having room for, of being willing to, to let this be here, whether I like it or whether I don't like it. It's like a, a deep respectfulness for life. That whether I like what's happening or not, it's the truth of the moment and therefore there's that willingness to be close to life, to love what's happening, to include what's here. So in speaking about those qualities of love, just roaming a little bit outside the specific realm of of, uh, intimate relationship. But I think what's important is that sense of love as the practice of love in terms of the opportunity to cultivate those qualities, to respond by caring, to respond to that which uh, is painful, to let in beauty. So for the heart to to cultivate the heart's response through caring, through responding, through appreciating, through... Accommodating what's happening, and also that sense of the the way those become the natural resting places of the heart, and because they're they're the essence of those qualities is the expanding of the heart, it's it seems to be that there's no limit to the way 
that expansion can happen. No limit to the, to the degree of intimacy with that which we care for, that which uh, we respond to, that which we appreciate. And just let me to add a reflection a little bit about uh, money. The, um, somebody a couple of years ago gave me a book called uh, The Buddha's Teachings on Prosperity. And it was, a, it was a book by a Sri Lankan monk who had gathered together all the teachings that the Buddha gave specifically to lay people. And it's very, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of quite unexpected things in there. I think part of what we were talking about, the partial inheritance from the monastic tradition, is a kind of asceticism, a sort of an ascetic aesthetic that, uh, that goes along with, um, with practice. Even though the realm of lay life isn't an, asthe- an ascetic realm. And it's interesting to see in, these, in this book that uh, I was given how, how the Buddha encourages uh, prosperity, encourages wealth, encourages a sense of striving for, to, for uh, material circumstances that one can really use to support oneself, to support others, to support that which one values. But when, when we, again, I wonder what the associations are you have, like in the same way as asking around love, what are the associations you have around the words prosperity, wealth? It's something about the nature of the cultural climate we live in that the tendency is when we hear those words to just see, you know, like in a cartoon, see dollar signs. And it's it's uh, it's there's something about our culture that has kind of got to a crazed level, it seems, of measuring of, or reducing the sense of prosperity and wealth to uh, to a kind of monetary value. So if we ki- if we try to just to um, put aside those associations, we might have access to a different sense of what could be meant by prosperity as a sense of uh, a trust in life, a sense of buoyancy, a sense of sufficiency, a sense of a capacity to meet. Now, prosperity has a, has a kind of energetic quality to it of a capacity to fill out into. Prosperous. It's actually kind of an old-fashioned word. I have the, the impression, if I think of prosperous, mostly in terms of old English literature, which might have used the word prosperous in a way that it's not so likely to be used now, I think of a kind of round Victorian kind of gentleman, prosperous. And actually, it's interesting, because the roundness is a good fit in terms of the energetic quality of that. And it's not got the, the, the capacity to feel prosperous, to feel wealthy, to feel sufficient, hasn't got very much at all to do with the measure of, in a monetary value. 
We see that because you can see people, and certainly living around here, you can see people that have got plenty of money, more than plenty. But don't feel round and full and sufficient, prosperous, grateful, capacitous, but rather feel thin, needy, desperate, Like the image of the hungry ghost with a vast belly and a tiny mouth. <laughs> so one, one, and we can, you know, whether one, whether people we might know personally, or you only have to open the pages of those awful celebrity magazines right, to see people with extraordinary material uh, advantage. Living miserable, needy lives. And similarly, with very, with mod- very modest uh, financial circumstances, why it's uh, possible that one abides in a sense of gratitude, that the listening to birdsong, that the seeing the light in the trees is a confirmation of one's prosperity. One's sense of that capacity for that roundness, for that filling out into a sense of appreciation for what one has. So I think it's important, you know, in the Buddha's emphasizing of wealth and prosperity for, uh, for lay practice, for us to be able to separate what out what that might mean for us irrespective of financial circumstances. That we may be more or less fortunate with, you know, whatever that is. But our capacity to, to have for a sense of gladness and gratitude, graciousness and generosity, is a little bit irrespective of, of, the, of a monetary value. And that it's difficult for us to see that because culturally there's so much ascribing of monetary value, so much emphasis on monetary value. Uh, Andrea was speaking about the dana earlier for the support of IMC and the support of teachers. And dana meaning generosity. And Buddha speaks about Generosity, the practice of generosity, the cultivation of a generous heart as a foundation for happiness. And that's very much to do with the sense of uh, prosperity. The sense of that one has enough to offer. And again, you have to see if, you, if there's already the beginnings of measuring that in purely financial terms. There's a lot of you know to to be generous is to have a sense of the the capacity and the willingness to share one's resources. That's a happy making thing, right? It's happy making to feel like oh I've got enough of this to share. It might be one's money, and the the delight of supporting what one feels is worth supporting. It might be one's time, you know, in volunteering or something. It might be one's attention. To make room for another who needs to be heard. 
So, you know, that sense to actually recognize the resources we have. Again, irrespective of um, the tendency to hear that resources we have in terms of, you know, how many zeros, you know, in terms of a monetary value. The resources of our time, our care, our attention, our skill, and our money. To practice generosity, or similarly we might say to practice prosperity, to explore that sense, the capacity we have to fill out into a, a sense of sufficiency, gratitude, capacity, a sense of the, the willingness to and the, and the possibility to share with others to the extent that that capacity is there. And at the same time then, are, are practiced with that, also including the extent to which it's not, to which there might be fearfulness, insecurity, a sense of lack, sense of need. So in, in what starts off being an exploration around money, then as we open that up to, to what I'm trying to invoke as, as uh, these wider, fuller um, qualities that we're calling prosperity, the invitation for that, not just as a, a practice and a, something I should attend to, but as what the Buddha calls the foundation for happiness. A foundation for happiness and feeling, ah, oh, so much to be grateful for. So much to be grateful for. In the widest sense, rather than just the monetary value sense. But I also think it's worth reflecting and in the light of the re- all the, the Occupy protests and the, the sense of the 1% and the 99% and the, uh, the highlighting at the moment of a lot of um, statistics around wealth. And we could pick or any, uh, from any number of uh, different statistics around that. But if we are to measure in monetary value, whatever our sense of where we are on the scale and our tendency to measure, you know, we measure against what we see. And, you know, so that's uh, in the light of living in, in, is this Silicon Valley? must be close, at least. Just the statistic I read uh, yesterday or the day before. If you earn more than $1,000 a year, you're in the top 50% of the world's population. Yeah, wow. If you own more than $1,000 a year, I mean, and you have a car and a telephone and more than a couple of changes of clothes, you're, I don't know what percent you put you into the right up, right up near the top. So, small measurement, living in this kind of environment gives, may give one sense of wealth or prosperity or, or gratitude uh, or uh, cap- a capacity to express support and generosity. And so sometimes just the widening of one's view 
might give a, a different sense of that. So, friends, these these reflections are. I offer these reflections in the in the aspiration, in the hope, in the encouragement that we uh, we apply them in our lives and the ways they move and reveal themselves to us. And so, whatever, uh, if there are reflections of your own stimulated by that, or from other aspects of the day or anything at all. It's all welcome. Yeah. So my name is Sabina and um, in, on all of these topics, could you speak to, um, I know it's kind of a broad question, but skillful exploration of what you were talking about earlier, the, the things that cause contractions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the basics of that versus going down the rabbit hole because yeah. you're somebody who hypothetically might be over analytical <laughs> has analysis paralysis you kind of end up exploring it and yeah. end up in that loop <laughs> as opposed to use your body use your body attune to your body that's where you can you can in a real way Tune to what to these contractions that we were speaking about. Otherwise, it becomes overly analytical. Mm-hmm. It becomes an intellectual exercise, right? right? And then, uh, and then we just we just do well. What you're calling, then we're just down the rabbit hole, lost in the story about what's happening. So the the real the the real foundation of being able to track the demands and defences and distractions and all the ways we invest in and get tight around our experience. The real foundation to that is moment-to-moment embodied aware mindfulness practice. Certainly I think I could say for myself after 20-something years of doing this practice, it seems to be an infinitely deepening there seems to be an infinitely deepening sense of what it means to be embodied. And sometimes I think we can think, oh, okay, well, first we do a bit of breath and body, and then there's all these other more exciting-sounding things to, to pay attention to. But paying attention to anything is dependent on that attention being embodied. So as the, you know, that's, that's a, a lifesaver, I would say. You know, if you feel that sense of over-analytical, getting carried away, to just keep attuning to the felt, alive, visceral sense of what's happening here. Yeah. I had a, fr- a friend uh, who had done 15 years of this practice. And she decided out of recognizing the the value of this, she decided to just devote the next 15 years, five years at a time. So she did five years of just forgetting all about everything except just mindfulness of body. So this is after 15 years of practice, just five years of mindfulness of body. And then five years of mindfulness of emotion. 
and then five years of mindfulness of thinking. So I just mentioned that because it's it's a, a tragic jumping over of ourselves to imagine that this stuff, breath and body stuff is somehow um, uh, you know meditation 101. Anything, anything that we can understand in meditation, including the kind of the the, the vast, extraordinary realms of experience that can open up, they open up out of the foundation of an ever-deepening sense of what it means to be here. And here has to be embodied or it's not here. It's a, it's a representation. It's an imagination. It's a projection. It's an abstraction of here. So even as you're listening to me, legs on the ground, breath in the torso, hand on the mic, and you're more here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's obvious. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thinking of your comment about the 20 years of practice, um, and coming from uh, having invested 20 years in a martial art called Aikido, where the whole practice is devoted to embodiment. And yet finding this, um, the, the teachings as I'm a newcomer to this mm. tradition, feeling s- like grappling with similar things almost, similar states of you know, contraction and working for expansion and openness. I'm just wondering if you have any sort of comments or comparisons or whatever that might be helpful. Mm. Um, it just feels like I've come full circle again, one more time, spiraling, mm. Mm. to work with being here. Yeah. Well, I can't really, I can't speak from within the Aikido tradition. So, doubtless, there are a lot of similarities, right? That sense of, you know, the, the context of allowing the possibility for a fluidity freedom of being, expansiveness. Right? And so there's the orientation towards that. And that orientation then has to take into account the, the, the being willing to meet and explore all the things that seem to be in the way of that. Right. So that's the similarity. Now, the next bit I don't know because I don't know your Aikido teachings or teachers or how it's held within the way you've practiced Aikido. But sometimes within some martial arts or yoga practice, and there's, there's room for a whole range, but sometimes the, the emphasis on those things can be a little reductive just to the physical. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's just a sense of, of physical flow, ease and expansion. And physical flow and ease and expansion are lovely. They feel very, very nice. Right? But there's not... If, if that's the case, and it's, and it's a little reductive around the physical, there isn't the same wisdom component. And so the, the experience of ease and flow then isn't as, uh, doesn't conduce in the same way to insight about the nature of reality and the alignment of one's own life with the way life itself is. So I'm not suggesting that Aikido doesn't cover that territory, but that's my sense. So my sense is 
yes, there's great similarities. And sometimes in, those, in the more physical disciplines of martial arts, the emphasis can be a little... Um, well, if the emphasis is purely physical, then you don't get the wisdom aspect, which means you don't get the transformational aspect so much. But you get a lot of lovely experiences of flow and ease and expansion, which are wonderful, but they don't, they don't transform the life in the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. I think you're speaking to issues of transformation and also transfer to daily life as you talk about these three charged issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly where I'm coming from, mm. is grappling with those. Maybe it's not even grappling. Maybe it's just allowing this um, tradition of wisdom to find its place in my life. Mm. <laughs> we all have come from many different teaching traditions and I don't know been lucky to study with amazing master teachers of one sort or another all of our lives I don't know, it's, that's where gratitude comes in for me hmm. <laughs> so, luckily there seems to be one more wonderful stranger that'll walk into your life hmm. and <laughs> share something my sense is that any kind of bodily um, discipline that you've practiced a lot in depth can be a tremendous gift when you when you bring it together with a meditation because you are already very familiar with your body. So I I think um, you know I've talked to Laura a little bit um, and my sense is that the practice has come very natural to her and I think it's because she has all these years of paying attention to her body. So now she just adds the mental part. And when it comes together, it's, it's really beautiful. It's a similar situation for me. I have a dance background, mm. and it was very uh, fascinating for me. At the beginning, I thought it was a disadvantage that I was so aware of my body. I suffered oh. a lot from it uh-huh. because I thought I was the only one who was painfully aware of stress and contraction. And, um, and, and I had to kind of keep it secret. <laughs> but when I saw that... This is, this is something we share. Right. It, was, it was such a freeing yeah. Uh, experience. Yeah. And, and yeah, I depend a lot on my body for the practice. Great, yeah. I mean, like we were saying with Sabina, because the embodiment is so central, then if, you add, if the wisdom component hasn't been there, then if you add that in, you've got the foundations really, really steady for, for that. Yeah, thank you. So if you don't have this awareness, I've been told, you know, if you have a chronic pain, this is a good focus of meditation, or um, that these these things are not uh, maybe physical maladies that are are just a part of a human body. Yeah. Um, But is there a way of... Going back? Well, there's not necessarily a way of separating those things out, you know. We speak about mind and body as if we can find them separately from one another, right? Actually, actually we we often our common sense is a sense of self, of ownership, 
And the, that sense of ownership has a body and has a mind. Now we've got three things. Right? A body, as if that's some kind of independent thing. A mind, does this sort of thinking. And then some kind of background owner of body and mind. Like the Wizard of Oz. You know? Someone like pulling the levers and controlling it all. So, and that's... that's um, well, it's just a sense. It's, it's one of the ways we make sense of our experience. But it turns out to be a very, very clumsy, kind of partial way of making sense of our experience. And as, as our uh, investigation of body and mind and the sense of self deepens, then, then we're not so dependent on that kind of clumsy separation of body and mind. It's like there's just more a sense of a field of experience Right, that doesn't really have edges to it. You know, look, the field of experience includes seeing, for example. And there's, there's no edge to that. The field of experience includes seeing, uh, hearing. There's no edge to that. The field of experience includes sensory experience. And common sense says that sensory experience ends kind of here, at the skin boundary. But actually, our alive experience, it's kind of edgeless. That sense of sensing, the vibrational quality of sensation. And so as we, as we get more familiar with, more trusting of, more embodied in the midst of this field of experience that's happening, then the sense of mind, body, and uh, is all being discrete and separate uh, is, is less useful, yet less necessary. And I know this is a long way around to getting to your, <laughs> to your question, but... And so then, things show up as, as energetic experiences. Right? We might experience something predominantly physically, as sensation, heat, pressure, tension, etc. We might exper- experience them predominantly emotionally, as, a kind of, as pain, contraction, fear, etc. We might experience them predominantly mentally, as ideas about and description of what's happening. As, this, as that, the discreteness of mind and body and things dissolves a little, we tend to experience more just in terms of the kind of energetic forming and unforming of things. And, that can, and you can meet that in different ways. Right? But body is the most reliable way to meet it. Because meeting it on the mental level, you tend to just, it's much easier. You can relate directly just to the way mind's unfolding but needs a lot of stability, a lot of embodiment to be able to do that. So much more straightforward, at least for some years, I would say, to just really attune to body. In the attuning to body, it starts to open up. So within meditation, for example, all kinds of different tensions might start to reveal themselves. And some of them are meditative tensions. They're the tensions of compacted patterning in the body unwinding and so you're probably familiar from retreat sometimes it's like heat you know we might not putting any pressure on our shoulders to sit in meditation just sitting and yet pressure and heat in the shoulders might be very intense or lower back or the neck or the knees so those things that come with some intensity in a meditative process and then they're not there you know, so people say, oh, I've got this terrible pain. And, da, 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 da. and I say, well, is it there when you're eating lunch? Oh, no. 
It's it's part of the meditative process. If it was a chronic, predominantly physical expression, it it would be just as much there during lunch as it would be there during meditation. So if one has something that's that's chronic in the sense that it endures regardless of the focusing of one's attention or one's state of mind, then because its expression is predominantly physical... It makes sense to treat it predominantly physically. So we might go in terms of you know, some medical intervention or body work or that kind of thing. Right? But if its, if its expression is predominantly energetic and, and changes in accordance with the way mind changes and the, the way of relating changes, then I would say it's, then the, the way of meeting it is likely to be um, you know, predominantly in terms of attuning to it in that way. It's a long answer, but I think it's an important uh, piece. Yeah, Yeah, Ted. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if it's the ultimate, but okay, it sounds like it's the ultimate. uh, And I'm not sure about whether I should be telling you what stance you should take, but okay. Um, You've told us what stance to take on everything else. Don't stop now. Um... You know, like some of the other ways we explored, sexuality has this capacity to be an arena like no other for the exploration of intimacy, of the dissolution of boundaries, which practice is all about, explored in the sense of those expressions of love, a sense of the expansion of the heart in the way that the sense of separation dissolves. Sexuality is an extraordinary arena for that. And it's also an extraordinary arena for all kinds of uh, tensions and uh, difficulties and uh, hurts as well. So because it's such the, the, the force of sexuality is so strong, like within it, one has to be respectful of very strong forces, right? So I think it's important to engage with, with the stronger the force of something is, the more wisdom and clarity and care one needs to bring to dealing with it. The force of something is not very strong. I'd quite like a cup of tea now. I don't need, it just doesn't require as much of my bringing all the wisdom I can to bear on how, whether or not to engage with, <laughs> to have this cup of tea, right? Just, the chances for me getting really hurt or, have it, or getting really, really, you know, it's just less. So whereas, oh, I quite feel like sex now. You know, depending on the circumstances, you know, the, because the force is stronger, it needs more attention. That's one, that's one point about it. The other thing, I think, in terms of... Um, it's a little bit like the happy ever after thing, but there's something, because orgasm is so intense, I think we tend to unconsciously measure the rest of our relationship in the light of the, the peak experience of orgasm. And, you know, peak experience is a very good idea. If you think of a peak, you know, that bit at the top, the peak experience is orgasm. And we, we kind of, it's like, oh, oh, it's a relationship like that, you know. And then, oh, and then, and then there's all the other stuff. And somehow the sense of, why, of feeling something's wrong because it ought to feel kind of intense and amazing and like, you know, it's very dissolved. But th- when you think of that sense, look, that peak, that little bit on the top, called orgasm peak, is built on all the dishwashing 
and uh, <laughs> and managing the the grocery bills and and all of that stuff. So I think that's helpful to see that uh, you know there's something exquisite about about sexuality, and because of its very exquisiteness and the power of it, it has a corresponding really need to be careful, to be uh, you know refined in the way one deals with that and also the recognition that there's a kind of setup if we're not careful you know uh in terms of of mistaking the peak for for the that it somehow ought to be the whole territory of course there's so much more we could say about sexuality because it's such a charged area but those are in, in to kind of add that into some of the other reflections those are two things that come to mind I wonder if there's any if there's anything particular that you uh, no. It's just advertised. Uh-huh, right, right. Yeah, it's true. So, so sex is kind of the buzzword in the title often. That's what gets me hits on the website. <laughs> and in some ways, I'm using it as a shorthand for kind of the re- the whole realm of intimate relationship. But it's true, as you as you point out. And uh, and usually, you know, we, we I spend a week exploring this stuff with people, and it seems like it's not enough time. So uh, this is, is, you know, feels like a, an arrow slit through which we're we're looking. The uh, the the topic of sex actually made me. Um, uh, for me, uh, it was a way of really understanding desire, and uh, and how um, this overwhelming desire actually could um, overshadow my sense of care mm-hmm. for my partner. Mm. And uh, all of the suffering that came from that when I didn't get what I wanted, uh, the resentment, the other things, the little sarcasm, all the things that came out of that uh, sense of, um, uh, of having this desire. And, um, and as you said, it's, it, it's a, um, there's an impermanence to it, too. The desire is there. It seems so strong because we have this idea of something we really want to achieve. And... Uh, um, and then it may be gone. Mm-hmm. If we can be there with the desire, just see the desire, and that for me was the practice mm-hmm. to understand if my partner wasn't there with me, then my job was to manage, look at the desire, mm-hmm. just watch it, observe it, watch it fade away, and um, uh, just that very thing improved my relationship with my wife in situations where before there was the outcome was resentment and all these other things that came from it. So uh, for me it was very simple of just watching that desire, watching it arise, being present there for it, and uh, uh, if the partner wasn't, you know, just keep watching and it fades away. Right. So um, anyway, for me it's it's very much connected to uh, uh, the process of desire. Yeah, yeah. and whether sexual desire or any other kind of desire, you know, the nature, to the extent that we're identified and invested in desire, to that extent we, fix, we fixate on the object of desire. And the object is usually a representation of something else. You know, it's not, it's, it's not really the thing that we want. There's the belief in that moment, if I only had that, then, oh, then everything would be okay. If only I had sex, then, oh, then... Or if only I had, you know, whatever it might be, material or immaterial. And so I think one, one 
one useful way of, of working with desire is just the reflection. What do I really want? As a way to explore what initially seems, and because sexual desire is such an intense form of desire, the intensification on the object is more intense, again, than the cup of tea. You know, it's easier when it's around, oh, I feel like a cup of tea. So what do I really want? Oh, maybe I want to assuage my thirst. Might be that, but it also me. Oh, I might want to. I, I might be just actually, if I really check it out, I want. To, I'm trying to kind of distract myself from a moment of boredom, or a moment of something else. But because sexual desire is so strong, it's uh, the tendency is to go so much towards the, the desire to really believe that that's what I want. He's who I want, or she's who I want, and that's uh, and then the kind of the lurid fantasies that might go with that, etc. So with any desire, but particularly with sexual desire, and particularly when our desire is frustrated because somebody else won't have the good manners to kind of go along with us, you know. <laughs> and then we're left, like you say, without the opportunity for the exploration of the, of the, of the intimacy. But we're just left uh, uh, with the movement, with the heat of desire. So the observing it, like you say, but, and also the reflection. What is it that I'm really wanting? Because what the first layer is sex, is what I'm wanting. And then what does that mean? Oh, intimacy. Oh, what's that? I'm wanting, oh, maybe, you know, it could be a lot of different things, but oh, some kind of comfort. Oh, some kind of holding. Oh, some kind. And that that if we really track the desire for anything back, our capacity to fulfill that desire is already right here. The desire for anything is, some de- is the desire for fulfillment. And fulfillment's actually available. You know, we're already as intimate with life as we possibly could be. And so the desire to get a sense of intimacy through having sex or through having whether it's food as well. You know, that's the heart. There's the basic kind of food to maintain our body. But then there's, you know, when you pass the bakery. You know, it's like underneath, we don't, chocolate cake isn't really, we wouldn't say in a philosophical sense, what I want is chocolate cake. Right? But the fixation is there because we want some, some th- experience that's going to give us intimacy. And all those things, sex or food or a car or anything else, are always in the end poor surrogates. Even if they feel exquisite at the time, cake feels pretty good, sex feels really good, right? and yet they're always poor surrogates for the... If, uh, for the real intimacy that we don't actually need to go anywhere for. Neither, not towards cake, not towards sex, not towards anything. There's, there's, there's no, you know, any movement towards a surrogate intimacy is a movement away from the, the most fundamental intimacy that's, that's already here. Right? The fact that, oh, this life is in every cell of my being. In every moment of my experience, everything I see, everything I hear, everything I taste, everything I feel, everything I think, is the, the confirmation of and the expression of my utter intimacy with life. Enough for today? Okay, well, it's a good note to end on the remembering of our utter intimacy with life. So uh, to appreciate uh, you all, to appreciate the goodness of your practice, your willingness uh, 
to show up to yourselves in the way that uh, this practice invites or challenges us to do. And, uh, thank you for having me. To thank you for the, your support for me in terms of the dana that you offer and the way that enables me to to keep doing this in the various places and ways I do that. Some of you have seen the the book that I put out. Actually, it's on the I think it's on the dana table. But there's a book uh, uh, that a woman in in the sangha at the centre where I live, who's a photographer, took a bunch of pictures of the centre where I live, and it's very be- there's lots of very beautiful photographs. So it's kind of good propaganda for. Uh, our center. And there's also a leaflet there, which I don't have many of, but you could at least copy down the website. And that has details of the, of the center and the retreats we run in southwest France, and also has details of my international uh, roamings and teachings here and there. So uh, be well, go well, and I hope to see you again sometime. Thank you. <laughs>